You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 334. Consider this a courtesy. John Wick. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Well, guys, today on the show, I welcome back the record holder for the longest episode in the history of the show, Mr. Albert Hughes. Now, Albert, if you don't know who he is, is the director of classic films like Menace to Society, Dead Presidents, From Hell with Johnny Depp, Book of Eli, and the new John Wick spinoff series, The Continental. Now, Albert and I sat down and discussed his approach to The Continental, what's going on in Hollywood today, and so, so much more. Albert is one of my all-time favorite guests to have on the show. So without any further ado, please enjoy my entertaining conversation with Albert Hughes. I'd like to welcome back to the show returning champion, Albert Hughes. How you doing, Albert? So apparently we still have the record. We Alex. still have the record, brother. It was, it was during the COVID times. Uh, you were stuck in Amsterdam, literally stuck in a room somewhere by yourself. And I think I was the only beacon of hope for a conversation about film for you. We <laughs> sat there and spoke for three and a half hours, four hours, and and it just kept going. And we were we were on Skype. It was either we hadn't even gotten to Zoom yep. yet. We were on Skype. What's it? Was it Skype? It was. It was. It was Skype. Wow. I, I never hear about over. Skype anymore. I didn't move over to Zoom yet because I was one of the last holdouts on Skype. So it was. Oh, uh, I still was, have it. I still have the app. Do you still have the app? I can't know because my my I got the new computer and it doesn't now. <laughs> like my, I couldn't record uh-huh. anymore. It's an old thing. But uh, man, well, that that's an epic conversation we had. Man, it's been one of the most downloaded episodes we ever had. And then of course, when I heard about you, when I heard about it in the press, I I emailed you right away. I said, "Hey, man, congratulations! I cannot wait to see what you do in the world of John Wick." Uh, and uh, and you did not disappoint, my friend. I, I have seen it, and it is... Oh, thank you. It is, uh, like I was telling you before, it's so nice to see a director direct in television. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not grabbing on anybody else's style, but the, you can see a very distinct a po- like point of view when you're working, and mm-hmm. it's like those things that you and I grew up with in, in the 80s and the 90s, or like these kind of directors who, like, you know, put the cameras, move the cameras... 
did POV shots. They're like, oh, look at that. That's nice. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, it's also it's a new world now where you know back in the eighties and nineties when we were growing up too, it's like uh, the the film directors, film writers, producers kind of looked down on TV. Yeah, of you course. Know, or yeah. streaming. There was no streaming back then, but. And now, like the best writing, the best acting, and some of the best directors are coming to those formats. And I mean, Netflix owns half the best directors in town right now. You know, literally, um, they're just pipelining the, movies. But you know what? It's really interesting because, and I've heard this from a lot of people. It's like a lot of the independent filmmakers who would have been in independent film in the '90s and the early 2000s are now going to television because that's the only place they can actually make a living because there is no real output for market the marketplace doesn't open it's not as open as it used to be for independent film as it used to be yeah. in the 90s it's 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 uh, like the marvel movies the temples the ips they've squeezed out the mom and pop movies or the mid-sized movies or the genre movies you know like blumhouse is doing well with their movies uh, the horror genre have low this, but jason's because... got but jason's got the sweetest deal in, in hollywood i mean are you kidding me like i thought when yeah. i talked to him on the show i was like dude you like you're doing like ten million, fifteen million dollar movies being distributed by Universal, like widely. Like that's the the sweetest deal in these. Yeah, and some of those movies are only five million dollars, yeah. you know. And they have these sweet deals for everybody involved. And he has a really good business model, and it's really um, not only sensible but very kind to the talent involved. You know, he's one of the few guys out there that that's doing something like that. We actually share the same accountant, um, <laughs> and I did work with him on uh, on, on, on Good Lord Bird. Because uh, uh, his his company produced that, um, yeah. But it's a new day and time, and the, that's what's strange is like with this series, the Continental. Um, it wasn't set up like a typical TV schedule, ten episodes or eight episodes, where you're rolling into the next episode with your cast and crew, then bringing in another director, guest directors, and then you know sometimes those episodic uh, TV shows have that lull in the middle where they're trying to save money, and you can tell they're filler episodes, and. We've talked about, me and you, I do distinctly remember talking about last time in our marathon run, David Fincher. Oh. And the one thing, you, if you look at what David Fincher did with Mindhunter and you look at whatever the showrunners are, I, I got to look up who the showrunners are on Handmaid's Tale, there's a very consistent style and quality control going on with those shows. Both shows could have been shown in a theater and you would have known uh, none the difference between uh, whether it was a TV show or mm -hmm. a movie or a one-hour episode. Um, but it, it all came down to quality control. And then there's those other like really nuanced de details like what I learned, the difference between TV and, and feature filmmaking is uh, uh, TV is a writer's medium, as you know, right? And features are a director's medium. So when traditionally the writer's medium has been going on, it it's less about style and, and tone of, of the mise-en-scene, mise as you know, you learn in film school, <laughs> uh, and more about close-ups. Close Close-ups, yeah, close-ups, wide screen. shots, and then close-ups. Yep, yeah, small and then they still were, to this day, they are still think that way, and they're slowly coming out of it. I'm talking about at the executive level when you start getting notes. Well, where's the close-up for that shot? And it's like, well, people have these big screens. Now, you don't need that close-up anymore. So then the cinema, like I give this, this is a bad, good analogy. I don't know. It's like a guy's on the phone with his girlfriend. She's breaking up with him. And he's very lonely, right? Mm -hmm. And TV, you see it as a close-up shot because the writers are leaning on their dialogue. In film, you learn through the masters, like tell the the story in the shot too. Go really wide and have him really tiny in the corner talking and looking small and lonely. So the shot's telling you he's lonely and isolated and being broken up with. And so is the dialogue. But you don't necessarily need a close-up on his face at this moment, right? 
that's the difference. But there's a benefit to TV and what they do because I've been studying like I consume a lot of you like Succession and all those shows, you know. Sure. And they button the scenes with close-ups and the characters' wheels are spinning. And it takes you into the next scene. You're like, oh, I wonder what they're thinking. Or you might project on what they're thinking. And that's a very useful thing to learn from TV because cinema doesn't, uh, feature the filmmaking doesn't really do that. Yeah. So there's, right now also there's this thing where it's like, if I'm making something or another feature guy is making something, I don't want to change my style because it's a TV show. I don't want to do more close right. I want to respect the audience is going to read that shot correctly, especially considering that the TV sizes have changed, you know? Um, so we still all have a lot of adjusting to do, especially on the, the executive and studio network side to welcome those filmmakers into the TV space for what they do without constantly pounding them about close-ups, you know? I would agree with you on that. And when I was watching this, I was noticing, I mean, it's this basically, there are like three movies, uh, these episodes. Mm-hmm. They're just three standalone movies with like, tail, you know, like cliffhangers, essentially, or like the next, there's another episode in this thing. Um, it's a it's serialized in that sense in this miniseries that you've put together with Continental. Um, but the, man, I got to say, man, the budget, the production value on this thing must have been pretty impressive because the i mean we all seen the continental and john wick right and we've seen it mm-hmm. done but this is john wick in the 70s which is a great decade to do mm-hmm. this in by the way the it was i mean i mean come on it's, i mean it's as fun as you can yeah. get to, to play in that in that era yeah, yeah, shooting, yeah. <laughs> but the visual effects i was noticing the how the visual effects we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show and the depth of it, the world creation that you did for the Continental. What was that? How did you approach doing it like that? And I mean, I assume there was a decent budget for this, but this is not a $100 million, $200 million show. But it looks like yeah. that. It looks like that. And we'll get into the action sequences well, in a minute because that's a whole other story. Okay. Well, maybe it's interesting. I was going to hit on it earlier, but I forgot. It's uh, the, when I was talking about TV schedules. And how they roll into the next thing. There's no prep time for the guest directors. We only had one guest director, Charlotte Branchton, who's been around forever, very capable. Um, but it's even very difficult for them to maintain the style, and it's a very hard thing to do to quality control the tone and the look and all that stuff. But w- one of the reasons I did it, there's several reasons why I, I did it. One was when I looked at the way they laid it out, it was like a 14 week prep leading into episode one, four weeks prep leading into episode two, four weeks prep leading to episode three, each 35 days a piece. That is not normal for TV. That's not a normal schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not even normal prep for a movie. Like 12 weeks, 10, 12 weeks is normal. Not 14, I was about to say. But they see that for, yeah. But they see that 14 as helping the overall too. You know, you're not just servicing one. Um, so that was the first thing that raised an eyebrow. I go, oh, they're, someone was smart. They're trying to in- ensure quality here, you know. And with a guy like me, don't give me prep, you know, because I'll use it. Um, a lot of directors, as you know, don't use it, you know, and don't, um, you know, uh, you know, parlay that into some real um, security and, and quality, basically. And then there's the other thing about the WIC film producers talk to me first because I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. I didn't know if I wanted to play in another man or woman's sandbox. Um, but they they talked to me about it and. I was considering something else, and I, I go, I just want to have fun, man. I, I did, the COVID thing was really weighing on me, as you know. 
And <laughs> I, I think the audience wants to have fun. And I don't want to do this social issue stuff anymore. Like I've done it. I'll go back to it maybe. But right now I have fun watching those movies. Why not? Basically. Right. And that was a real motive. Oh, and then you had me at 70s. Like you just said earlier, you had me with the 70s. Right. <laughs> That's the era I grew up in. And I was born in. I have a white mother who's listening to Pink Floyd, a black father who's listening to you know, James Brown. And I'm finally able to explore the, the mother side of my upbringing. You know, mm-hmm. the father's side has been tapped into greatly from the past movies with fantastic R&B and hip hop and stuff. But yes. now it's like Pink Floyd is my favorite band of all time. No one would suspect that even some of my closest friends wouldn't know that. That is, I don't care what band you bring up, you start bringing up Led Zeppelin, the Beatles. I don't want to hear it. Pink Floyd, my my guys, they're my guys. And then the, the heartache of having to give that song to episode two, which is a you know an episode I supervised and finished the the post on, but I didn't direct it, you know. Yeah. And it was uh, Kirk Ward, the showrunner, uh, and my friend, my re- very good buddy now, my partner in this, who uh, he was struggling with that scene because we just couldn't find the right score for it, and we couldn't find the right. And he came up with that choice, and I go, man. That's one of my favorite songs, like Welcome to the Machine. Mm-hmm. So it was it was he that picked it. And he picked a few others that I I uh, I was uh, cuz sometimes a needle drops you. Like I'm pretty I'm pretty good at at it like 70%, but when I'm bad, I'm really bad. It's really off, you know. And <laughs> once you put it against picture you're like, yeah, what was I thinking? I thought this thing would work." And he he's the one that came with Black Sabbath at the end of episode 1, which was in this attitude Kirk came mm-hmm. with that. Because originally I put it in more of an upbeat kind of, um, it's kind of a punk reggae, mur- it's called murder. It's a woman singing murder, ooh, ooh, murder, mm-hmm. yeah. you know? And I thought, oh, this is such mm-hmm. a, a downer episode at the end because of something tragic happens. I want the audience to leave for a week because I knew it was going to be a weekly show. I want them not to leave too down. And he kept working on me. He's like, Albert, it's not right. It's not right. I'm like, oh, okay. And then he brought this Sabbath track and I go, ooh. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. that that's screaming revenge and, and anger. So yeah, I got meandered a bit there, but yeah, you know, but well, that's the thing. You got to try things before you say no to them. But no, when you were yeah. saying it, and I know the scene, and I know the ending of that episode, I'm going no. It, it would have not worked. It's just like I'm already playing no. it in my head. I'm like no, it's not. I you I need- tried it. I tried it. The first few seconds, like ah. You need anger. You need revenge. You need vengeance, and that's what that song. The energy of that song came out without question. Yeah. I mean, listen, you know, John Wick has created uh, an, uh, a bunch of movies, a world that is unprecedented, really, in cinema history. There is nothing like John Wick. There's just nothing like John Wick and what Keanu did and what the creators did and the actions and stuff. When you stepped yep. into this world to play, like you said, in another man's sandbox, did you feel any pressure of like, I got it, man, this better bring the heat. Because every single, there hasn't been a weak John Wick film, in my opinion. Every one mm-hmm. has been like, like this last one, <laughs> I saw it in the theater. I was like, this is, guys, it's really, like you it's can- It's bananas. It was, it's, it's like so much action that you can't even, I'm like, how many years? That, it's like almost like a, almost a kickback to John Woo style, hard boiled. That's, that's true. Oh, somebody was bringing this up. No, like, like a friend reached out to me yesterday was like, he didn't know I made this and accidentally watched it and then he could recognize it was my style. So he looked at the credits again and then he, he messaged me and he goes, it just reminds me of us watching John Woo in the night. We were, I go, well, that's where Chad partially, he has a, a smorgasbord of influences and some would be shocked to know that not 
the John Woo part, but the Bob Fosse and musical part. He's into oh. musical and dance numbers. And when you talk to Chad, he'll talk about all these influences, um, you know, Korean cinema too, of course, Japanese cinema. Um, some of the same things overlap with both of us, but I, my favorite John Wick of the four is three, three just tickled me pink. Oh. Like it's when you, when you talk to the hardcore John Wick fans, they don't, they don't care for three. They love one. I think their, their order is now it may be one or four, but they really have a soft spot for one. It's one, four, two, three. Mm-hmm. Mine's in a completely different order. Mine, three, one, two, four. And four um, is still solid. I love <laughs> oh, it's, it's, solid. it's solid. It's crazy. Like they do up the game. There's just weaknesses I have for three because they reminded me of being a 12 year old watching Indiana Jones. Like that knife fight and that, that oh. I don't know, that museum of knives. Like, I thought it couldn't get any better. It just kept getting better and better. And then it ended with the guy's axe in the head. I go, oh, my God, this is a, the sword fight and on the motorcycles, which is from the villainous uh, um, uh, Korean movie, I, I believe. Um, but, uh, again, it was awesome. And then who could have ever thought to smack a horse's ass to kick a guy in the face? Like, there's, so there's all, and then there's the dogs, the Halle Berry dog stuff. Like, so it was speaking to the 12-year-old boy in me where, the difference with four was I thought four in the end, what it took me a while to realize was more of a spiritual movie. It is. It came up it more is. spiritual. Yeah. As though it's one of the most, I didn't expect things, that. I, one of the most violent things I've seen on cinema in quite some time, but it's, it's correct. It's, it's but I also saw it with green screen. Yeah. I oh. saw it though. Early cut where the Arc de Triumph, you couldn't even see the structure when they were doing that. You couldn't see what oh, happened wow. to the continental, I was watching a lot of blue screen, and it was like a three and a half hour cut. I, I watched at first, so when I saw it in the cinemas, I was I was shocked at like how good the VFX were. Like that Arc de Triumph thing, like how it's, it's, oh my, there was no there was no no Arc de Triumph there. They did shoot it in lidar and do all those things, right? But right. how how realistic those VFX were, like I didn't know what that scene would become. Oh, in, I thought I thought, I thought they shot it. The I thought they shot it there personally. I said, not that you told me that. I'm like, I thought they shot. They did a fantastic job then because I couldn't tell. Yeah. Well, there's establishers, you know, and even in the establishers, if you look closely, you can tell that there's digital cars. Not not that it's badly done. It's just that the speed they're going in that traffic, unless it's you impossible. lock down all of Paris, it's impossible, you know. <laughs> um, and, of course, we know how these things are constructed, you and I. So we're able to know, even if it's really great VFX, what the... What's going on, you know, behind yeah. that? I know. I thought they might have locked up, you know, you know, from one o'clock to four o'clock in the morning, something like that, because mm-hmm. it was just looks so, so good. And going back to John Woo, though, I mean, you go back to those kid, the killer hard boiled. That is ballet mm-hmm. with guns. And then Wick is just taking it to a whole other other place, which then brings me to. Go ahead. You know, and I was going to say just before we get off of John Woo, the big difference between then and now is that. John Woon didn't have those air guns that you can put up to somebody's face and, and see mm-hmm. the recoil and hear a little sound that's so safe you can literally put up to your eyeball. You know, mm-hmm. he was using real muzzle flashes. Stuntmen, they were getting hurt all the time because there are regulations out there for protections aren't the same in China at the time. Um, like just running through stuntmen, right? He was shooting for 100 days and more. Like, yeah. you know, John Woo was going all balls to the walls without all the stuff that we have, the tools we have nowadays. And then you have someone like Chas Tehelski, who comes from that stunt background, who specializes in that. And then he, he's found this perfect match with Keanu in that kind of world. And it's like a parallel universe, which is what's so freeing about doing the show, The Continental, is like... 
We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You know, when I started checking off a list of why I should do something like this, one of it was like, well, my brain is going to be free just to have fun now. So what's that going to be like? I didn't have any idea that I would have the most fun in my life on a set or in post or in prep. It was like an experience I'll never forget. Well, well, and going into the action, I mean, when I was watching the episodes, I was like, my God, is this like John Wick level action, movie level action? So that this is, it's not like if you're tuning in to see the Continental and expecting like TV versions of John Wick action, <laughs> it is not. It is, you could, it's the same take it it's, you could take it out and put it right into a $100 million, $200 million movie and it would fit perfectly. I was so, I was like, man, and it's got balls. Well, it was the, the same, ball, man. Balls it's the, the same guys. It's the company that Chad owns with David Lee called 8711. Mm -hmm. And some of the same people that were in some of the Jaguar films are part of the stunt team too. And Lorenel Stovall, the coordinator and action director was, uh, is from that that the uh, eighty seven eleven camp too, and Chad had to bless the person that was being chosen for that basically before we started, and then they go and do this thing called stunt biz, which is wonderful. You get to see everything beforehand and make adjustments, and they do this really cool thing the new school of stuntmen do, which is, um, first of all they show you the stuff. The old school never showed you anything, right? Um, <laughs> they also make use of the environment. And if the environment's not cool enough, we may rewrite uh, where we're where this fight's going to take place. And it's interesting I'm telling you because there's one scene in episode three that's particularly catered to your audience in a way. It's like when we talked in the past about when you have no money, what do you do with it, right? Right. So right. Kirk had written this scene where this character, Lou, a black woman's being followed by um, this detective, Mayhew. And it was going to end up in this like fight between the both of them in the streets. And I said, you know what I've always wanted to do, Kirk, a fight in the phone booth. You ever heard that expression, a fight in the phone booth? Like, yeah, I've heard it. Or sometimes a boxer announcer are like, they're just bl blowing each other in the corner, blowing each other in the corner, <laughs> hitting each other, hitting, you know, just, you know <laughs> taking blows in the corner. You know, there's, they've all skill has gone out of the window. They're just. It's a game. Yeah, it's a, it's a street fight. Head. It's a street fight. Yeah, it's a street fight. Yeah. It's a street fight in, in close proximity. It's, it, it, it's a, it was like watching a, fighting a phone booth so i said we need to do this for two reasons one i think it'll be cool because we can use the phone booth the environment of phone booth two this could be a lesson to people with no money in film school like i want this scene to be the kind of scene where they look at it and they go you see you can do something interesting without scope and still tell the story and move on and play play on kind of um i don't know what the what that's an analogy i guess or a metaphor mm -hmm. um play on something like that yeah we we did have the budget to uh, do what we wanted. I didn't feel the pinch in any way. Like, uh, you can give me $10 million. I'm not going to feel the pinch. I'll design the movie to the budget. You can give me five. I'll design the movie to the budget. But what I always aspire to from the first movie is you give me 2.5, I want to make it look like seven. You give me 10, I want to make it look like 20. And there's right. little tricks to do that. We talked about in, in the last time we talked about. But people should know we each budget had a, pretty much the same budget as the first John Wick movie. Mm. That's it, well, it wasn't any lower or wasn't any higher. Yeah. And, and the thing is too, is like when I was watching this again, I said this, you use some of those tricks to get more, you know, bang for your buck. Cause it definitely looks yeah. more bang for your buck without question. Now, speaking of stunt guys, this is my, I love, I love stunt guys. Uh, I was working on my, uh, on a, on a project that was working with a 24 stunt team, the 20, uh, Kiefer Sutherland's show. 
uh, yep. back in the day. And I, is it just me or are all of them absolutely nuts? <laughs> they are, the old school guys are a different type of nuts. The new school di- guys right. are a different type of nuts. You, they you they all are like, <laughs> go ahead, sorry. No, it's like I heard like when, when I would go, listen, I need you to do this. I need to do a gainer here and I need you to do a flip. And they're like, but can I jump off the second story? I'm like, no, I don't need the second story. We're, we're good here on the first Like, No, no, no. But I, I could do the second story. I'm like, I'm good. They're like, no, but look, I'm like, guys. <laughs> and it was not just the yep, first. There, but All the- of them would always take it to 11, as they say in Spinal well, Tap. <laughs> Yeah, they're they're adrenaline adrenaline junkies, you know, and they're like fighter pilots. Yeah. They're in this whole other mode, you know. And they they I I recall from the past, and it has moved to the new school. They have this swagger, this kind of arrogance, it, it, and they need that arrogance in their job, you know. But sometimes you can misread the arrogance and, and not see the person, basically, right? Um, and they're they're very interesting, especially the new school guys that come out of eighty seven eleven because they always over design. Like you're talking about that in a way they want to give you more. The yeah. stunt guys never want to give you less, and you actually never. always never. have to talk a stunt person down. Like no no no, dude, we don't really. If you don't, but also if you here's don't, the wrong stunt guy <laughs> or girl. Yeah, <laughs> they, but also the dirty little off. the dirty little secret. The dirty little secret is the more times they do that stunt, the the they keep getting pay bumps. Yeah, on, depending on how dangerous the stunt is, they keep sure. getting these these crazy pay bumps. You know, I didn't know that until four years ago. I found that out. I'm like, really? Oh, that's why they're so eager to do another. Like they're limping to the third take. Like, yeah, let's go. Let's go. Let's go again. Let's let's go again. Yeah. I mean, I I can only exactly. imagine. Like with the with the stunt team that you had on the Continental, these guys. I mean, there has to be. I mean, I know they're professionals, but there's got to be some some damage, man damage on these guys the body could only take so much even as a professional that's so many takes you could, yeah. Yeah. you could only throw them down the stairs so many times <laughs> right i mean seriously yes. at a certain point even if they know how to fall even if they got the gear on and mm-hmm. at a certain point you just gotta god god bless them man. <laughs> yeah and, they, and the, the difference is too is that they have to train our actors like that's what the wig fan base wants is to see their actors doing it and we had this interesting story one day when Chess uh, Elaine is an actress who played Lou in there, the brother of Miles, Hubert uh, Pontijor is the actor's name. But Chess was, you know, she's a very sweet woman and she doesn't like violence really and they're training her and she accidentally hits a stunt guy in rehearsal. And, you know, we're not shooting, they're in the, the, the warehouse doing this. And she's really emotional about it. She's really bent, bent out of shape about it. And I'm like, no, no, this, this happens all the time. Like, don't, don't worry. And we were all a little worried about her. Like, is she ever ever going to be able to, like, just get over this? And she did. And you see, you've seen the El Camino fight with her in the back of an El Camino mm-hmm. on episode two, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've seen the whole series, right? Okay, I've so seen, mo- I've seen by- most of the series. I haven't seen all of it yet. I've seen most of it. Oh, shit. you got to get the three, man. We should need- I got, Okay, I- so we got to come back with Kirk. <laughs> you come back with Kurt on that. I've seen the first two. Oh, I've not seen the third one yet because I, I have a family. Oh, the, the, the third <laughs> the third one goes. I know the third <laughs> one goes off the rails. But but she is in episode two in the back of an El Camino, like kicking a bunch of people's asses. Right. You see, and, that's, and then and she basically cool. blossomed. Yeah, she blossomed. You know. But wait, I got to pause for episode three. Be, 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 prepare you because it's it's gonna feel like to you a very um deceptive. It starts out like oh, this is kind of starting out like the others. You know, it's normally yeah. paced, and then it just takes this right turn, and it just goes nonstop for fifty-eight <laughs> minutes. So, 
So you were trying to you were trying to John Wick for it, basically, just this nonstop. <laughs> well, it was a it, it was a hybrid because Chad has this thing, this thing he does that's wonderful is that um, it, because he has a two or two and a half hour movie and doesn't have to tell a three act structure and, and, and right, introduce right. too many new characters. Sure. And you have Keanu, and the audience knows what he can do. You can wallow in a twenty minute set piece. I I can't really because I have a, a story to tell. I also don't want to bore the audience. You know, I'm I'm very much into not having action fatigue happen. So it's deceptive in episode three because there are modules of action seemingly taking place in one set piece, which is inside the hotel. It's a raid. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's pretty obvious at this point, it's a raid, you know, that Winston has to take power from this hotel and a revenge story, right? Um, So it feels like one continuous action scene and it actually isn't. It's one continuous raid that, uh, the way it affects your brain is is a, you're watching a lot of action um, because it, it it jumps around to different locations within the hotel and different group members doing different things. Um, but it's relentless, not in the same way as relentless as uh, you get the Arc Day Triumph and then you get the uh, Dragon's Breath scene from the above angle in the, in the <laughs> oh, building. God. And then you get the steps. The, then you get the steps. It was like, you put those three back to back. That's like 45 minutes straight of nonstop action. You know, it's, it's a lot. Before. It's a, it's a lot. Now I got to ask you, man, because there's a, there's a special actor who play, who's in this, in the show, Mr. Mel Gibson. How do you mm-hmm. work with not only a legend, but arguably one of the better directors of his generation? Cause he is a really good director as well. How was it to work with him? Yeah. He's 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 a pro, and once you get to three, you'll see he goes off the the hinges. You know. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And and you know the process of working with him. You've seen in the past, like he does these very passionate, like Ransom or Braveheart or Road Warriors, my favorite. Hacksaw, and that's why we wanted him. Yeah, Hacksaw as as a director. Um, is uh, he 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 makes you believe in what he's doing in the movie if he's playing the character you believe right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what what I found was interesting is that he those zingers and one liners that's him. He likes playing with words from uh, Lethal Weapon movies. That is him. That's what he comes with. That's how his brain works. And he plays naive on the set. He doesn't look back and look at everything. He's like, what lens are you using? You know, and he acts like he doesn't know. He knows it, and he's watching everything like a hawk. And he doesn't go to his trailer, which it's a great thing to have with an actor. It's like they're not uh, slowing you down. Uh, he's very much, I think he said it one day, he goes, I'm a good soldier. And and he is. And he's highly intelligent on both sides of the camera. And it was just uh, a fun, like we had fun with the, the whole cast. Because um, I have some people in here, like Adam mm-hmm. Shapiro, who's opened a pretzel business during COVID and it's all the rage in Hollywood right now. And Sheppy pretzels. <laughs> who's a, who's a one liner walking one liner zinger comedy act, you know, um, that I work with a past. There's a few people I work with in the past that have this thing that I was dealing with, with Mel too. Like they just want to go on the set and have fun and they don't want to cause problems. They don't want any headaches. They don't want any drama. And those are my favorite kind of people. So he's cut from that cloth and I've been here for 40 years, how professional he is on the set. And it's exactly what I saw. That's beautiful, man. Now, when you when you walk into an action sequence like that as a director, these are not simple, not simple sequences by any stretch of the matter. It's not like hey, punch, punch, punch. It, the movement, the camera, 
how would you how do you approach doing this? I know you've seen it a little bit of previous, but like if you're if you're talking to a young directors who are trying to get into action, how do you approach a, 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 like some of those scenes like that in the in the first episode, the stair sequence, going down the stairs with him? Who well, he looked like Keanu, by the way. He I mean he was on point. The main actor, uh, yeah. the main character. Yeah, less training though. He only had three weeks. But he but he looked. Like I'm like this guy looks like John. I mean, you, in the movie, he looks yeah. like John Wick. I was like, oh wow, he's like John Wick style. That's how good he is. And we are nodding to that. Yeah, obviously, yeah, because he's just he was so yeah. good. It reminded me so much of John mm-hmm. or of Keanu doing that. How do you approach that kind of scene as a director? Well, I was very lucky because of the built-in nature of eighty-seven eleven in Larnell. Is you you, you you would think you would have to stress about it. If it's a younger filmmaker and you don't have a great stunt team, you're in trouble. Oh, sure. If you have a great stunt team, what I do with them is I I say, um, I've learned in the years, it's like, um, and I think we, we discussed it before, it's like sometimes let professionals be professionals if, if you're trusting. Don't get in their way, let them do their job, and then stir right. the pot every once in a while. I'll have my bullet points of wants. And for that sequence, what I wanted was very overall in a general sense was um, um, Jackie Chan's use of objects and how playful he is with them. Yeah. So he's Frankie's carrying a chest with a coin yeah. press in it, and I I kept saying um, in my it was bullet points written down, and I would talk to Larnell. I want him to throw it at somebody so that it distracts them and they can shoot it. That's very Jackie Chan. That's also yeah. very Chess Stahelski too, and John Wick. It very much mm-hmm. fits in that world, but. I remember first seeing it with Jackie Chan. It's a playful, playfulness with chairs, with objects and stuff like that. Um, and then we would talk about the sequence and they would design it. And then we start uh, adjust, making adjustments. Now, a lot of times the struggle between me and Larnell, a healthy, really healthy struggle and debate creatively was how long he was going. The scene is uh, one page, that's one minute. You give me one minute. He would turn in six minutes, right? I'm like, Larnell, you're killing me over here, right? So there's a, this would constantly going on, and that's part of the w- way of being trained in stunts is like they they do explore it fully, right? So in that staircase sequence you're talking about, I cut out a whole floor of violence. There's a whole two two sets of stairs that I cut out because I felt like it was undercutting the gag before and the gag after. And right. sometimes you have too much of something, it just undercuts itself because you can't focus on the peaks and valleys, basically. And so that was, even in the phone booth fight, the phone booth fight was really long when I first got it. Mm-hmm. Um, the the You'll see this really fantastic fight between these two women in episode three uh, on, the roof, on the roof of the Continental. Mm-hmm. And when I first got it, it was long. And I told my editor, like, let's maybe cut back to somebody else and then cut back to this. And he just looked at me and said, no, this is Wick. This is Wick world. You don't, you don't have to cut away. We're going to stay in it. And I thank him, and that's what a good editor does too, is like when you're insecure as a director, they just say, stop, no. They did it, like the scene, you've seen it because you haven't made it to three. You saw the adjudicator scene where Hanschman's beating down that guy mm-hmm. and that, that atrium, right? So when I get the first cut of that, because I love my offline sounds to be great, right. um, they put great <laughs> sounds in. So it, it's, it, it was pretty much the same thing in the offline. It was brutal. And how many times he was punching them in the opening? And I said, Ron, Ron Rose is my editor. I mean, he's a genius. I go, Ron, I think maybe there's too many punches on this guy's face. And the studio or the network's going to say something. And I kind of agree. Maybe it's a little too much. He goes, dude, dude, it's 
It's the wick. It's the wick roll. There's there's no such thing as too many punches. And I'm like, okay, well, we'll just keep it in for now and see if they say anything, right? They never said anything. And then I watched John Wick 4, and when he's, when he's punching Killer in the face to get his tooth, like, it's about the same number of punches. <laughs> but again, it's Keanu. Keanu has such a soft spot for the audience that he can pretty much get away with anything except killing an animal. Right. I mean, you could fall out of four stories, land on a limo, and limp away. Four times in the movie. Continuously, yeah. Continue, and then fall down 45 yeah. flights of stairs, get up, brush it off, and you just like... Okay, get shot off a building, get shot off a building by Winston, fall, fall on an awning, and then on the concrete, yep. Sure, why not? Yeah, it, 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 yeah it's Keanu. Yeah. Of course it's, it's Keanu. Now, with that it's said... Keanu. So with that said, did you have any Easter eggs laid out throughout this episode? These episodes oh, the, of, for John Wick. Yeah, there is the John Wick Easter egg for the hardcore fans. There's the casual Easter eggs, and then there's the 1970s Easter eggs. Like, mm-hmm. let's go in reverse. So 1970s Easter eggs. Yen picks up Frankie after the staircase shootout. That's an exact replica of Travis Bickle's Taxi from Taxi Driver. I remember. I saw um, that episode two. Yeah. Episode two, if you notice, uh, late in episode two, a Starskin Hutch car appears, red with a, that Nike white swoosh, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Episode three, right before that phone booth beat down I told you about, there's the Warriors from the movie Warriors. There's the hearse mm-hmm. with a graffiti all over it, right? Then you have the obvious John Wick uh, kind of Easter eggs that are quite obvious, um, whether it's the, what they what we're doing with the coins. Uh, what some of the rules are, what some of the changes of the rules are. Then there's the, the deeper ones, like in episode one when Winston gets the idea, get, idea to go to the theater to see that old decrepit theater where he finds his brother. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The scene before that, he's at a stoplight and he looks at a poster and it's a Marilyn Monroe movie. Yeah. And the name of the movie is Be Seeing You, which is from Wick Film 2. And I think the 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 deaf, the deaf uh, woman, I forgot mm-hmm. her name, um, she, she would constantly sign to him, be seeing you, and he would sign back after he killed her, be seeing you. So that's, that's the right. title of the Marilyn Monroe movie because they wouldn't give us the rights to gentlemen prefer prefers blondes as a title. <laughs> um, and that triggers a memory. And then that line recalls again in episode uh, three of the show and also the adjudicator's license plate. She has a car we reveal in episode three, but her license plate is a line from the adjudicator in film three, uh, show filthy. Right. Mm. So there, there's a bunch of them that and uh, Kirk, the showrunner, he 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 itemized them all because um, oh. Peacock Marketing and Amazon Marketing wanted it um, for their, you know, that's a really smart thing of them to do. They wanted it to, to use it for marketing. Uh, and I forget until I see it like, oh, God, there's that. There's that. There's a bunch of them in there. So that's really interesting. So that was kind of part of the plan. All I mean, yeah, every once in a while you, you'll throw stuff in. But this was like really thought out. Like, where are you going to throw this? Yeah, it was more coming from me and Kirk being fans of the movie. It wasn't any mandate. There wasn't even, they didn't even tip us off from the film side what happens in John Wick 4, although I saw it early in post for this. Mm -hmm. They weren't doing that, and it was so freeing in a way. They weren't doing what Disney or Marvel would do, which is like, they have these particular mandates you have to have to do the show, to nod to the future. We we love that we could reverse engineer and know what we, what the first three films were we knew what that that was and they they just kind of trusted us um i don't know why but they did and me and kirk would just break down those movies and say well that would be funny if we can put that in there 
And it's always fun to put Easter eggs. I think Easter eggs, like, even if you're just doing a normal movie that has no reference to anything IP related, mm -hmm. to put Easter eggs in there nodding to other movies is always a fun thing. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And in uh, episode three, you'll get the famous one. It, you have to really watch out for it from my favorite movie of all time, Midnight Cowboy. I'm walking over here, you know? Yeah, of course. That was a complete yeah. fluke <laughs> when that yeah. happened. Yeah. Well, now there, did you hear there's two different versions of that story now? That that was not real. That I know is that it, it was a real cab, a real cab, almost ran over Dustin Hoffman. He's like, I'm, that's, that was the story. What's the story? Now there's a counter story that is actually believable because we know what goes on. They would have had to get a release from that guy to use his, his likeness. Mm -hmm. the, the cab driver, because you clearly see his face. And right. they would never have wanted to put the actors in that much peril walking across the street secretly recording. Ah. Um, and the line of dialogue I heard is actually written, that the, the ad-lib may be the line after where he, he talks about uh, that could be a good insurance scam too. I saw this story that broke it all down and I go, hmm, that's interesting because for years people have thought this. But we got to hear it from Dustin's mouth, I guess. I mean... And it, and he's gonna tell the truth at this point. In the game, he's just might want to live. The yeah, exactly. Now. I mean, but yeah. I mean, it was the '60s, right? It was the '60s. If I'm mistaken, it was '69. '69, right? '68. It was shot. '68. Right. It was shot. Yeah. So it was the '60s. Would they need the release? Yeah, but it was in a public environment, so maybe. Like that's uh, true. Yeah, that's true. That's you could kind of get the documentary, but you could you, because it wasn't a public street. Technically, you don't need. I mean, and it was just a different. And they were doing that thing back then, where with in New York movies, they were shooting inside of a van with like the tinted glass to get shots like that. Oh yeah, you know? like yeah, and, and without permits, and just like running around sometimes yeah. because it was yeah. just kind of it was guerrilla filmmaking. It was kind of the beginning, and then the beginning, but it was like when they started to really start the indie vibe. Started like I think Midnight Cowboy mm -hmm. really kind of started that whole easy, easy rider and. And now, and obviously, yeah. the raging taxi driver, yeah. raging bull, and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it was. I, I'm, I'm curious if you talk to Dustin. Next time you talk to Dustin, um, let me know. I'll hit him up. He's <laughs> in my role at that extent. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, coming from a color back, I'm a, I'm a, I was a colorist for a long time as well, uh, and had a post house. I was looking at the approach to the color grading on this. What'd you shoot this on, by the way, uh, General? What camera? It it was the the airy forget which model yeah. D, DX whatever the fuck okay. it was an, it, it, um, like it was airy. the same lens it looked yeah like but airy. we it was degraded it was degraded because um we got the 1950s lenses I may have talked to you about this before from mm -hmm. Panavision that no DPs want to use anymore because they're so old they literally had to dust them off when I was doing Good Lord Bird and they have all these imperfections and anomalies in them right and they they are um they were built for MGM by Pathé or Pathé, Pathé and MGM were somehow involved, right? They hadn't been used in years. And I had Dan Sasaki, who's a lens guru over at Panavision, who, who, who services all the top DPs. And I just went in one day without my DP, because my DP was in a uh, different city. And I said, just give me the funkiest lenses you got. Just think of anything wild that nobody wants to touch. Even if it's cracked, just bring it. And then we started testing them out, and I picked this set. And later I found out because I said, I would like a list of the films these were shot on. Well, or, yeah. 
And it took them actually months to get me the list. It was like a list of 200 films, but the three films that stood out to me were Dr. Shivago, Cool Hand Luke, oh. and The Graduate. Oh! So you watching The Continental, yeah, you're actually seeing through the same exact lenses that shot those three classic films, right? Now, I could have shot with a Red, an Airy, or a Sony, and I don't think you truly could know the difference because we're, we're, we're not only doing that, we're also... Uh, deciding a lot were yes. uh, Maxine uh, Gervais, who was my colorist I spoke to you about last time, who's done all my mm -hmm. projects dating back to Book of Eli, which we talked about that. Mm -hmm. um, she's fantastic. She's an artist. Um, she's my partner on every project. Like, there is no DP director relationship without her. The, that tri if that trifecta doesn't work, if the DP comes in and doesn't get along with her, I can't hire him because she's, she's my uh, partner in this, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so she goes in and we start doing the grain thing again. We start, we don't do that, uh, that film grain, that one they license out, which is bullshit. You know, it's a, a, a scam. There's oh, that's a, that complete, that. a complete scam. It's I would a, never It's a that. scam. Okay. She scans, she's, they've scanned every film stock imaginable from the past. Okay. Sure. Uh, for grain. And then she does a thing and I don't know the technical terms for it, but there's different layers of color registration and mids highlights mm -hmm. and, you know more than I on this mm -hmm, thing, right? Mm -hmm. And how grain interacts with the mids and the highlights and the blacks. And she goes in and there's different layers to and degrees to it. And sometimes we lay in, we do this stuff where we try to um, have the imperfection. So like one close up may be grainier than the other one, or the wide shots are a little more grainy than the medium shots. So we checkerboard the grain, we pick the degrees of grain 10, 20, or 30, or 40%. And we, our base level would, let's say, be 20 throughout the whole show. And then we sometimes go to 10 and go to 40. Um, and it's a subconscious thing where you, when you're watching it, you feel a little bit of inconsistency that reminds you of analog. Mm -hmm. And um, so there was a lot of things she did uh, that she, she's a genius uh, colorist, um, basically. Um, like she's like, I, she's going to be mad I say that she's like the rain man of colorist. Um, <laughs> Because I tease I mean, her about is, certain things. That is a compliment, but I could see where she could go, hey, man. Yeah, but I tease her about it. We <laughs> meet her like people come into our color sections and they see us bickering because she's so sensitive because she's an artist and she just goes hard to get it right. And then sometimes I'll just say something just to fuck with her. <laughs> but they think that me and Maxine are fighting and we're, we're not really fighting. We love each other. And we're never mad at each other, never, yeah, right? Yeah, it's yeah. that she'll pick, she'll pick on me, and I'll pick on her, and she'll say something like, "Okay, so there's a transition." I know you would notice. It's like I like sometimes self-conscious transitions. So mm -hmm. it's tilting up from the beat down in the adjudicator and goes this atrium yellow circle yeah, that really transitions shot. into a yeah. yellow light, right? Oh, I love so, that. Well, I love that shot. Yeah, that's what I was so, talking about. That was so, one of the shots I was talking about when I said about directors. Absolutely. Yeah. So with her, like early in prep, I'll put in a shot list. Um, I'll put a Maxine dissolve, which is a customized dissolve. You know how that works. You're mm -hmm. pulling different image up on the second, the B side, and you get the customized dissolve. I said, I put, I'll, so I'll put in a shot list and it's for the editor too, because he has my shot list. So then we Maxine dissolve. I put it in quotation to the next scene and it's a, it's a yellow light. Da, 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 da. I didn't know. I, I didn't explain it to my editor what a Maxine dissolve was because him and his assistant were busy online thinking it's a technical term from Hollywood. They can, and I said, no, 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 it's my colorist who who does these <laughs> fantastic kind of creative dissolves because that was one, like one session we were snapping at each other um, on Alpha about. As I said, okay, Maxine, I need like a 48 frame dissolve here. And she just snickered at me and goes, oh, 
you want to dissolve here? I thought you wanted something more creative. <laughs> and I'm like, um, <laughs> well, sometimes a normal dissolve <laughs> works, you know, just so like, that's her. That's her. That's amazing that they thought that was like a special term. Because to be fair, in Hollywood, there there's always since the beginning of time, there's all these weird names for certain things. You know, a stinger, a B fifty two, or yeah. these Wilhelm guys. scream. Yeah, well, exactly. And then people are like yeah. what the, a Maxine dissolve. Where's the Maxine dissolve? Maxine dissolve. Yeah. <laughs> well, now you know uh, from your show, indie film hustle. Mm-hmm. A Maxine dissolve is a custom dissolve from henceforth. Yes, from henceforth, it will be called the Maxine yeah. Dissolve. I got to ask you, man, look, I mean, you and I are a couple of old dogs. We've been, we got a couple, a bit of shrapnel under our belt. And, you know, when you and I talk, it's so much fun because we're talking cinema and talking about what we, you know, our generation kind of grew up with. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see that coming up behind us, man. I mean, there are some. Mm. Where do you think 50, I mean, are they going to be doing, you know, this kind of like what you just explained with the grain? Mm-hmm. Like, are they going to be doing that in 40 or 50 years, man? Is it, what do you think? Well, it's, it's the, the TikTok generation now, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the generation that's born, I mean, a lot of after us or just a little after us. We were we were there from the the analog to digital. We we saw that. And I'm so happy we were that we know the difference between film. It's the bridge generation. Digital. It's the bridge generation. Yeah, yeah. And we know the difference between digital editing and film editing. And, you know, and it, it's so. Um, I'm so grateful that we got to see that. Um, there's something interesting going on, and this is a subtle conversation or a more nuanced one um, about this generation. It's like. They're seeing like, let's say a movie's out in the theater and um, they didn't put film grain in and they didn't do this. And, and it's very clean. It's a Marvel movie. And it's very, everything's very clean. It's very digital. It still somehow does feel like film because of uh, 24 frames because of the, the shutter. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, motion blur. And depth of field, depending on how you use it. Those three things we talked about before, right? Uh, that do convey the sense of cinema. And it took a while for digital to get there because of those three things in image quality, right? right? But if you actually play a piece of film, you go, whoa, whoa, <laughs> this is completely different. <laughs> oh, oh, God. Oh, and even me and you have been, been fooled into thinking this looks like film. When actually, no, it. it there's the whole other thing going on. There's registration problems. There's scratches. There's dust. Print. There's all this. Over- project project the print of Lawrence of Arabia, <laughs> and project uh, digitally project the print of a Marvel movie. And you tell me if there's a difference in the. It's image. an analog. It's an analog quality. Now there. Now I'm going to parse this argument out different. Like I think you and I talked about this before. I really don't get off on this whole film purist shit that a right. group of Agreed. filmmakers and their big Agreed. filmmakers talk about. I think it's fucking bullshit. It's mm-hmm. nostalgia. Um, it, it makes no sense. It, it, and excuse, excuse me for saying this. It's a bunch of white men who are nostalgic. Okay. Um, they need to stop going against the winds of, uh, they need to stop going against the winds of change and start mm-hmm. help building windmills. Okay. Um, like and when I see a bunch of nostalgic old timers, it triggers me as a, uh-huh. as a biracial guy. Mm-hmm. If you start getting too nostalgic, that goes down a dangerous road. Okay, um, <laughs> fair enough. Let's just take all these. Let's take all the. And I know I'm, I'm being harsh there. Okay, 
but let's sure. take all these tools available to us and tell the stories we need to tell. Like some of them don't believe in DIs. Some, oh, I didn't have any VFX in this movie. I don't give a fuck. Or, or, or talking overly too much about IMAX. Like, I don't give a shit. Is, is it good? That's all that the audience cares about. Is it good? If it was shot in an iPhone like Tangerine, it doesn't matter. Is it good? Um, but to answer the larger thing you're talking about, it's like, um, the, we're, we're in a world where everything's getting drowned out by too many voices on the internet. And I'm like, you know that because you have to find your niche and all that stuff. Um, so film guys talking about film and history, it's got to kind of die away with the new generation. And they're going to be talking about the films from our generation as being, you know, they're the going to be talking. It's not really our generation. They're going to be talking about Marvel movies like like as if it's uh, Lawrence of Arabia. That's what's but, crazy. But you know what? Quentin, Quentin said this really quick. I saw an interview with Quentin and he said this really interesting. He said he saw... He had a conversation with a 16-year-old, and he's like, yeah, I was four years old when Iron Man came out. And he goes, for that kid, that is Citizen Kane. That's that true. is, That's you true. know, Lawrence of Arabia. And Iron Man's that, a good movie. The first Iron, Iron Man is, is a great movie. Iron Man's a fantastic film, but the point is that that is, I mean, if you talk to John Favreau, he's not going to like, yeah, it's as good as Lawrence of Arabia, or it's as good as, you know, all these. It's not, a, yeah. it's, a, it's a classic in the in that genre, without question. But Well, it's, it's also like, it's just, yeah. Like when me or you were younger, did you remember, I'm sure you went through the stage where you were at a certain age, you're like, I don't want to watch a black and white film when you're 12. Oh, like absolutely Black and not. white, it's old. I would, like, I would never watch it. And then no, you no, got older and you're it. like, oh. Set the samurai. But nice. here's what happened during COVID. <laughs> I got to tell you about what happens because I've been to film school. I got film books and I read and I watch a lot of stuff. I have the Criterion channel. And I started deep diving in the 30s and, and being really fascinated by the fact that uh, the technique of opticals and camera movement and lighting was at an apex in the 30s. And I'm like, well, why is this? Like 30s, 40s, 50s, it started to slow down. By the 60s, it was out unless it was a very special director like Hitchcock, right? Um, or David Lean or something Kubrick. like that. Yeah. But the 30s, Kubrick, but the 30s had transitions and moves like I've never seen before, right? And I go, what, what is this? And I started thinking about it. I go, well, 1930, 1927, 27, 28, sound came in. Before sound, they had to rely strictly on the visual, so they were well-flexed in the visual and opticals, right? Mm -hmm. You look at Metropolis and the optical, multi-layer opticals, okay, and the framing in that. Oh, so they started leaning more towards dialogue, and now they started going away from technique of the visual. Uh, And that was an epiphany I came to. I don't know if it's correct, uh, film theory, but an epiphany I came to this last year because I've been deep diving on 30s films. And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm I'm so embarrassed that I thought that we can outskill them. You know, it's like, no, you can't. Creativity is creativity. It doesn't age, you know. I mean, you look at you look at something like Seven Samurai or you look at, you know, any of the Kurosawa films that were Rashomon or... All of those, you just start looking. You're like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I, I, I just, okay. I got, I got but it. But they're sir. doing it I at a time it. when there was no video monitors. They, they couldn't even. Sergio Leone didn't have a video monitor with those close-ups. Bro, watch I Am Cuba. Are you kidding me? Watch that oh, movie I Am yeah, Cuba, yeah, and you're just yeah. sitting there like, who? Never heard of these filmmakers. Doing yep. stuff with like five thousand pound cameras that look like they're doing it with an iPhone. They're, you know, yeah. putting things on, on 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 wires and putting them in the middle of the street while there's a revolution going. Like, what is going on? 
And that was what, the 60s. It was in the 60s, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was like I early believe 60s. So. Yeah. It was, and it was hidden. Until yeah, well, that's what's amazing. It's like, that's what's amazing about those films. Like, it was much tougher, much heavier equipment, like you're saying, right? Oh, um, communication, they didn't even have walkie-talkies in early cinema, right? <laughs> they didn't have crowd walkie- control. They didn't have a lot of things. It was a lot tougher. And then you had to get printed scripts, do everything by phone. There's no digitally sending the print or, or, or script to well, someone across town to read it right away. It, it's it's amazing. It's like it just shows you something. Like put those people nowadays. Oh, they're they're running circles around all of us. I mean, can you? Ima- they already were, but let's say. Can you imagine Kubrick with today's technology? Can you imagine Hitchcock? No, I with wonder. I, I'm so that's that that's a, that's a fascinating thing. You just said like what would Hitchcock and Kubrick embrace digital, or would they? Do like these other handful of directors who'd no no I was, I'm only gonna shoot in film, um which I well, I thought I was gonna be one of those guys in film school I was like I'll never leave film like I'll never leave film no mate. we talked about it before it's like I love the control of digital I love knowing I can sleep at night I got it right you don't have to and wait the next day to oh you roll the dice oh was the gate was there a hair in the gate oh was there the, oh great monitor you can see you can put your LUT on there you can see how the set and the costumes react to it. Like, no, I'm yeah. not into the mystery, dog. Forget that. <laughs> Agreed. But you got, but the thing is that both you and I had the opportunity to shoot 35, to shoot 16, to shoot Super 8, to play with those mm-hmm. things, you know, to do cross-processing in the lab, to like get image, get image saturation with. with and I am nostalgic times. about, I am nostalgic yeah. about it in one way. I like to emulate it. I like the look of it. It doesn't mean I want to use that tool to get the look. I want to use this tool to get the look, you know, um, right. because this tool gives me greater comfort and control. And I can even do my blow ups and repos and stabilizations much more, uh, not easier. It just, uh, there's another word for it. Uh, it, it. It comes down to quality and control. And, and people can debate this thing about, you know, you hear different people say that uh, a 35 millimeter is 8K or 10K. And then you hear another DP tell me, no, it's nothing better than 1080. It's pixels versus uh, grain, depending on the right. stock you pick, you know. So, you know, at a certain point, your human eye after 4, 4K is not, I, I, even you 2 to 4K, any... I dare, dare the audience member to know the difference, you know. You really can't tell the difference. I mean, then now there's a little bit difference with the uh, H, I forgot what it's called, with the color grading. HDR? Little, yeah, HDR. You get a little bit more color. I did a, we did a pass. And- I it's mean, a trip, it's, man, dude. It's a trip. It they is. bring in two monitors and they're coloring. My Maxine's coloring the standard one. I forgot what Rec Seven Hundred Nine or whatever it is. Yeah, right? yeah. And then the HDR, and um, depending on your TV screen, you can get the HDR version of the Continental. Right. And at first, I'm like, well, I don't understand what I know what HDR is. You know how it grabs the highlights and the mids and lows and it yeah. balance it out basically in your phone. I know what it is in theory, but when I'm looking at this image, that's HDR it looks more contrasty to me. It's popping more. Mm-hmm. I go, well, I, I didn't think that's what HDR was, but it, there's something going on there that I actually preferred that over the Rec 709 or whatever, if I'm using yeah, yeah. the correct term. Um, um, it, it's, you like it's that, quite though, but fascinating. But, the, but, the, but your whole filmography is that. You like poppy stuff, dude. Like, look at Bach, the Book of Eli. Yeah, contract. You do a contract, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're crunching. You're crunching the blacks. You're yeah. popping the highlights. You're making things a little bit poppier. That's my style. Too. I love... Yeah. But the and, difference is... If you, I don't know what time of, type of TV you're watching. I'm, I'm assuming you have a huge TV you're watching the show on, and not I your do, laptop. Sir. Okay, 
Yeah, I, just it, I was watching it on this last night. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the difference is, is that, like... Is that a problem? Is that a problem? I shouldn't, I shouldn't watch it like No, this no, no. No, we're talking... We're just talking about that generation. Get ready for it. And we all... we. By the way, it's funny, but we all do have to be aware of that, right? Sure. Um, but, like, if you look at the lighting style... We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. Of episode one and two, I chose this really young DP, really dope. He's a hippie dude, long hair from Norway, right? Sweet nice. man, just an artist, right? But he he's more into ambient light, you know, fill the room oh. with smoke and mm-hmm. not hard light, soft light. And I started learning along the way that I actually love the way it looked. It's not what I've done with in the past. You're talking about contrast. It's harder to do contrast with lighting style like that. It's yes. European lighting. Oh, it's amazing. So what I learned during the show was um, when you couple that with these old lenses, it can get dangerous. You have to watch out, very, right? Very. So I, I get to the third episode with Peter Deming shoots it, who I work with on From Hell and a bunch of other stuff, old time. He's been around. He's done Austin Powers. He's done the Scream series. He's done sure, sure. Uh, Lost Highway with David Lynch, Mulholland Drive. He's been around. So at a certain point, we're shooting, and I can't wait for you to see three. Um, we're shooting, and he just goes, Howard, trying to introduce a little hard light here. And I didn't know what he meant, right? Because sure. I do have in my style guide noir lighting, this, that, shadows, silhouettes, and you need hard lighting for that kind of stuff usually, okay? So we wrap the whole thing, and I see him at the premiere, and I'm talking to him. And I said, I know what you mean now. Moving forward, we have to be careful with these lenses. I love what they've done for the show because they they fucked it up with that kind of more diffused look. But moving forward with this, I want to use more hard light. And I now know what you were saying that day, Peter. Like, thank you, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Because this is why, actually, when you see episode three, you'll see what Peter Deming did with those lenses. Mm-hmm. He's still within the same style of lighting, but he's, we're, he's like, we're creeping into... We're not using handheld. I got out of handheld because I, I'm actually not a fan of it. I think me and you talked about it before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not controlled to me. It works in the John Wick world for certain things, and Chas Tehelski does it wonderfully because he's not doing it in that Paul Paul Greengrass style. <laughs> Chas Tehelski is more. It's almost a, it's almost a steady cam the way they use it for mm-hmm. piano. You know, mm-hmm. um, we went a little bit more raw with the staircase scene because it's the '70s. You can get away with a throwback handheld look. You know. But you'll see if you go from episode one, two, and three, there is not one handheld shot in three. There's a little in two, and there's a few Dutch tilts in there that I had to adjust and put in, because I'm not into big into Dutch tilts, but that was that director's thing, and you know, oh, I had to adjust the other episodes because of it, so I was able to go put a Dutch tilt in one. That's what's great about TV. You can, oh, well, that director did that. It's not necessarily in my style guide, but I can course correct this a little bit for the audience, you know? You know, it's it was um, uh, interesting. I, I shot with the uh, Super Baltars back in the day on a red, for the same reason you shot with the Airy and these older the Super Baltars were like dirty from the forties, very hard. Like it, it thing was like I forgot Lachon made them. I don't know who made them, but they were like they gave it a funky look because the red had this hard edge digital thing. Airy, oh, first I, one, yeah. Yeah, the very the older ones had really hard edges. Yeah. And I'm like, I can't, I can't, I need something to soften it up. Mm-hmm. But then you start throwing a little ambiance in there, a little, little smoke in there. Yep. You, <laughs> yeah. you, you get, you get, by the way, the red used to eat up smoke. Did you notice? Oh, that? yeah, yeah. The yeah, first test we did, eat, it like eat film, eat would, it. would register on film, the red would just eat it up and make it go away in a way. Like it, you had to so smoke you, the room more for a red. 
Right. Exactly. Then when you start, when you know how it is to smoke, like the Tony Scott stuff, like when you start Tony Scotting it up a little bit, it's hard, man. It's hard to control the light. Yes. It's hard to, yeah. and then, and you try to match it for cuts. Yep. Forget it, dude. I, I mean, you always, budget. you always run into that problem, but if you, if you have a good stage, that's the only way to control it. Yeah. That's the only and, way. And you have to, have, but like, you know what I want to do? People on it. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. You definitely have to have a good, uh, what do you call it? It's a, the, the effects guys, the unset effects guys that do it, the DP and gaffer have to uh, keep their eye on it. The camera operator has to keep his eye on it. The director has to keep his eye on it. And everybody's like checking the levels. And now you can reference the other shot now, thank God. Like mm -hmm. back in the day, you, you couldn't do that. But it's interesting because Peter does some of that you're talking about. You'll see in episode three when you get there, there's a lot of shaft lighting come starting to play you have into to. it early yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. You but need that that's why I want to bring Kirk. Well, I want to bring Kirk back because if you'll have us, if you'll have of us, course, and of we course. could do, because we're lining up episode three, there's a lot of screenings going on for episode three uh, with Collider and, you know, there's other screenings going on around town and they're actually, you know, um, hopefully uh, this thing in Hollywood will be over soon. You know, I'm, I'm praying and yes. everybody will be able to, to meet the, the actors and, and, and the others. But for Kirk and I to come talk to you about three, because I think, you you're you're gonna see a lot of stuff in there that we grew we grew up we grew up on. Nice. Well, That's you're, all of I'm course, say. you're oh, of course you're welcome, sir. Anytime, and I would love to talk to Kurt as well. Um, I have to ask you this one question, man. What was the toughest day on set? How did you overcome it, man? Oh, jeez, man. You have to pray. You this is this is why we went three and a half hours. We were the same generation, <laughs> well, and we well, keep going. No, well, we'll we'll, we'll start wrapping it up soon. I just <laughs> we were still wrapping it up, but I. No, I mean, you hit me with something that I got to say is like, you saw it because you, 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 you've seen the first episode. Um, it was the toughest shoot day of my life is that party scene that yeah. appears to be a wonder, but we stitched together three shots. Yeah. And the issue was, and I don't want to come off unkind here. I'm going to say, try, I'm going to try to thread the needle here. If you're conducting an orchestra and one instrument's out of place, you know, you, you have to have a little talk with the, the flute player. And if the instrument's still out of place, you might have to think about replacing the flute player. Well, we had the, the flute player and the violinist was uh, out of tune. And um, I saw some early signs of it. And the, the, the shot was way more challenging than it had to be, okay? Because if you uh, correctly plan it, you get your, your extras in pods, you know you're dealing with animals, you know you're dealing with airless. You're dealing with a lot of things in that in that shot. Yeah. Um. You're hiding things. You're revealing things. Um. You need the whole, and that's what I love about a wonder. That's what I told the crew out in, in Budapest, and they were wonderful. By the way, had nothing to do with the Hungarian crew because they were fucking fantastic. Okay. It was either an American or British. I'm talking about. Okay. <laughs> uh, and they're supposed to be fantastic. Um. What I said is, what I love about wonders is, you can uh, get a lot done quickly. That's one thing. You have the aesthetic thing is another thing, which you know about, right? The thing, the other thing it does that most people don't um, give enough um, weight to is no one has an escape. Not the actor, not wardrobe, not hair, not makeup. Everybody's exposed, not the grips. Exactly. Everybody's exposed, okay? Mm -hmm. So they height, they get to this heightened sense of a, they go into fighter pilot mode because they don't want to be the weak link. And if you drop a warner on them every other day or every day, a mini warner or a long runner, you know, you don't have to do it a lot. You're just doing it to save time on a certain section of the scene or whatever. They, your crew gets into fighter pilot mode because they don't want to be the weak link. And they all super, they are super focused. Now, if you do coverage, they start to unfocus. 
because they know that you can cut around a mistake. It's if an equipment piece drops, if an actor flubs a line, if hair and makeup don't get the hair out of a nine time, they'll let the take continue. So it does this wonderful thing mentally to the crew. And so I have this scene that you, you were asking the question about. And by the end of it, it just felt like I went 10 rounds with Mike Tyson because I didn't have the, I had the proper support of 80% of the crew, 90% of the crew. That 10% really, really affected um, the day on what shouldn't have been an easy shot, but what should have been uh, on a normal one or one day if it was properly done by everybody being at their best. But again, this is what post is for. This is what I, why I repo, why I stabilize, uh, why I build in hidden cuts. Um, and this is why people, you know, sometimes people, like there's some filmmakers that'll take swipe at other filmmakers, like that's not a real oneer. Well, it doesn't matter. Uh, it, it's, it's for the audience to, to have the impression you're doing something in real time. The audience doesn't know that. Just because you know that, jackass, doesn't mean, um, it's not about how you do it. It's about the result, basically. You know. So yeah, so you can say the, so same, tough, so, the toughest day of my career. You could say the same thing about rope. That's not a real wonder. I'm like, okay, but it's Hitchcock, and he was doing it in seven cuts. Shut the hell up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, come on, come shut on. the hell up. No, that's just that's. Just, I mean, he still has uh, the record. He kind of still has the record if you think about it, because it's per real during film. He has the record. Oh, no one touched him. Yeah, no one. I mean, he was insane. Yeah. He was insane. But we could get done yeah. like three hours on Hitchcock alone. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I want to ask you a few questions that I ask all the guests. Uh, see how if they've changed a bit since last you were here. What advice would you give? <laughs> what advice would you give a filmmaker trying to break into today's business? I remember my last answer, I think. Uh-huh. And it had to do with talent. And sure. sometimes you can develop your talent but you have to know if you have the talent for what you're trying to do. If, you, if you're saying filmmaker by director, mm-hmm. you mean director, mm-hmm. not writer, not cameraman, filmmaker. Sure. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, recognize if you have talent early. If you do, keep going. If you don't, and you have to be honest with yourself, Get out of the way is what I said in the last podcast because you're wasting space for people who need that space, right? There's plenty of other jobs in this business that you can do. Um, breaking into the business, I think I would say just keep shooting no matter who's watching it, but just your mom or you in a room alone. That's all I do in Prague. I have 250 shorts that nobody's ever seen. They're yeah, I know. I've seen, I've, seen, I've seen a couple of them. I've seen a couple. Oh, I, cut, I sent a couple to you. Like Those are the ones I make available to my friends, like a handful of them, I think five or ten, right? Um, I don't, I don't, uh, uh, what do you call it? I, 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 you, you practice your craft. And the most important thing, it's like, I don't say this enough. It's like, you have to be willing to do it when nobody's watching and still love it. Beautiful. If you love it when nobody's watching, you got yourself a plan. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful answer, sir. That should be a t-shirt. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right under hustle. Right under hustle. Like a t-shirt. Albert right Hughes. <laughs> Um, if you can go back in time and talk to little Albert, what advice would you give him? All right. Now this is a new answer. I know. Yeah, I think this is a new answer. Yeah. Any question? Yeah. The new answer is when you're young, you think wisdom or being wise is goes hand in hand with being smart. Um, it actually doesn't. I think wisdom means to me, I don't know the literal definition means to me, you learn from the past 
and you adjust and that makes you smart enough you're smart enough to adjust let's say and you collect enough enough of these experiences that you know what to do quite clearly in the future and i would tell my younger self to go easy on myself and and to not take it so hard that this is part of the process of trying to become wiser in this job or this position and that you cannot rush that you can't rush wisdom wisdom takes time you 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 can rush talent a lot like you've seen some flash in the pan boxers lawyers filmmakers writers entertainers filmmaker you that you've seen them like woof super talented but they don't have the wisdom yet but they're still super talented and they can rush their talent you know what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn whether in the film business or in life uh pay, patience you know same uh, answer uh, you, you you know like you yeah but you know like we we you have to hurry and wait but that thing i think we talked about last time it's like don't get involved in every argument that takes place in front of you that has to do with your film it's a waste of time let those people figure it out mm-hmm. and you know poke in prod a little bit and kind of have a, a I've learned how to do this. I'm never good because I think I have a little bit of an OCD problem mm-hmm. as I wasn't good at tuning out the room when you're in a conference room and people are talking because sometimes you'll have your production designer and, and prop guy now on the same page and they may be arguing off of the side or the, the picture car guy might be arguing with somebody else and you think it's an unhealthy thing to see an argument, but it's quite healthy. And you, if you get involved in it, it's going to stress you out and you're not going to be able to do your job. They're there to help you and they're there to do their jobs uh, professionally. And just because they're creatively arguing about something uh, doesn't mean you need to get involved because that can tax you. And what you need to do is have a way of just making it noise. And if you hear a trigger word where you need to get in and stir the pot one direction, you do that. But generally stay out of it because the, the best idea usually comes out when the, the creative crew starts having a healthy debate. Very good. And of course, the toughest of all the questions, three of your favorite films of all time. <laughs> Did I answer this one before? Yeah. We, we I, talked I, about I, one, I remember. Yeah. They remain the same. Okay. okay. Mid- Midnight Cowboy is number one for a lot of reasons. Uh, Taxi Driver got nom- knocked out of the number one position long ago. Um, by Taxi Driver was there forever, okay? Um, it's Midnight Cowboy. It's Man Bites Dog is second. And Taxi Driver is third. That's what we remember, okay. Man Bites Dog. Because there's very few people who know that freaking film. And it is... Oh, amazing criteria collection. you had a run. Me and you had a run on it. We we went on a run about it. Okay, because oh, it's so no, inside it, baseball too. It is such a criteria. Look at the film. <laughs> it is. But if you look at the film, there's no reason at face value somebody looking at my list should believe that should be number two over Taxi Driver. Oh. And the reason is forget all the stuff that me and you know. And I'll I'll finish with this. It's a <laughs> the for the reason is um, it's the only film in the history of me watching films that made me question my own moral compass. <laughs> I was okay with a bunch of shit in that film into that one scene, and then I walked out, and I, I draw the line there, and then I got it on, on Criterion Laser, and I watched the rest of it, and I go, oh my God, it's not the film, it's me. It, this is a statement about me. And that's far more important than watching a, a mentally deranged taxi driver done well by my hero Scorsese sure. a, a, a film that that shakes you like that and rejiggered and by the way Midnight Cowboy did the same it made me question yeah. a lot of things about uh, 
growing up and what I saw with my mom and my dad and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what's, you know, there, you know, there's a, the debate between me and my daughter about whether they're two heterosexual men in love or whether they're repressed homosexuals and, and mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. form a bond, let's say. Okay. Sure. And you can have that debate and I finally found the answer and I was wrong. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that, that film is just special to me because a, a foreigner made it uh, from England, John Schlesinger came to New York and it also blows my mind that this lunatic, uh, what's his name? The actor, uh, John this right wing lunatic. John, yeah, the, boy, yeah, like he's gone. Yeah, he's gone so far, like almost, almost into Nazi territory. Because my daughter walking in with her dog right now. I'm All moving right. the camera over. There. Go ahead, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> yeah, because me and him go along a little. <laughs> um, no, it's like I couldn't. I couldn't believe that John Boyd would do. You had to be liberal minded and open minded to do that type of film, you know. So that that shocked me. Oh, and Deliverance. <laughs> He did Deliverance too. I gotta watch that again. I, I do no. I got, I gotta watch that film again because I haven't seen it since my childhood. And and, and that and says a lot about you. It. And that says a lot about you that you saw Deliverance in your childhood. <laughs> <laughs> well, my parents took me to inappropriate movies. I mean, back then there was also only so many Disney films playing in the theater, so there was it was Deliverance True. or nothing. My dad took me. My dad took me to see all that jazz, and I, I. Distinctly remember the nudity and the open heart surgery. And I recently saw it again and went on a Bob Fosse run. And it's exactly as I remember, except for the nudity when you're a kid, it's amplified. You're like, oh my God, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it's a, but that's a fantastic film. And so is Cabaret. Like I deep dive oh, on him and he's, he, he's just amazing. Albert, it is a pleasure. And as always talking to you, where can people find and watch your new opus, The Continental? It's on Peacock. The premiere episode was last Friday, the 22nd, I believe, but I'm jet lagged, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, that was episode one. Episode two is um, the 29th, Friday the 29th. Mm-hmm. Episode three is October the 6th on a Friday. And get to episode three, everybody, because it's building. That's It's all building towards how Winston gets that hotel and it, mm-hmm. it builds to an explosion. And I'm telling everybody that I'm going to see Alex again with Kirk Ward, our showrunner, Please. to discuss yes. episode three. In the near future. Very near future. I can't wait to have you back. And last question. Is there another, are we going to keep expanding this John Wick world? That's up to like Lionsgate and the producers. I have no idea. It's a, it's a wonderful um, world. You know, you can go so many different directions with so many different crazy characters. I suspect they will. They have the, and the army is a ballerina coming out next year. Um, And it, it feels like it's, ready made for it plus it's fresh it's not a superhero ip you know right so it's a it's an adult i, I, I it's whether an adult i'm IP. Yeah. exactly and whether that that's what's see you pointed out something i never heard before it's an adult ip never there's really heard many, it. it's an it's adult pg-13 ip or pg ip there's wow. never adult ips out there really like well, there should that, be a taxi driver ip <laughs> like they should do another <laughs> like what let's go into that but world. that's fascinating <laughs> That's fascinating. And I think like whether I'm involved or not, doesn't matter. I'm just a fan of the, the, the show that we did. I'm a fan of the movies and they keep making them and they're good. I'll keep watching them. Brother, as always, thank you for coming on. We can keep going and I wish we could, but we're going to come back uh, with Kirk. And we have a part two. We have a part two. We'll have a part two. My pleasure as always, my friend. Thank you so much. You too. I want to thank Albert so much for coming on the show and sharing his knowledge and experience 
and stories with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 334. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 